Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, it's Hugh Ballou and Russell Dennis on this version of the Nonprofit Exchange. And got a dear friend, a longtime friend who's been doing amazing work. And today I'm traveling in, in an airport with some noise, so I'm going to be in the background and mute my mic. So Russell, uh, why don't you take it over and be the primary interviewer and invite Chuck to share with us, would you please? Greetings. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, as always, welcome everyone to the nonprofit exchange. Uh, to the nonprofit exchange, your weekly podcast that brings you nonprofit leaders, thought leaders from around the world, to talk about how to make your nonprofit better. Today, we're privileged to have Chuck Bomer, uh, who is the creator of Jobonomics. Now, I know you hear a lot of information on the news. Uh, about the economy and about the job market. But what you won't hear are the types of things that Chuck is talking about here. Mr. Vollmer, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Russell. You know, I've got a nice long bio, but it always works better because they never do justice to the people that we see here. Uh, tell, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I define myself as uh, three things, a uh, triple oxymoron, if you will. Uh, number one, uh, I'm a dedicated Christian. Number two, as I'm a serial entrepreneur. And number three, I'm a hardened uh, combat fighter pilot. So, uh, you know, I, Jobonomics uh, started about 10 years ago, and it's somewhere between a ministry and a mission. Uh, we focus on uh, small business creation and jobs uh, creation at the base of the social economic pyramid and uh, our specialties are uh, uh, working with minorities, uh, women, uh, Generation Z, which we call screenagers, the kids that spend all their time on the screen, and veterans because we think those are the demographics that are most in need. And, uh, and so uh, we have a, a quite a library, about nine different books that uh, I've written, and uh, we have about uh, 18 uh, city initiatives that really revolves around community development and urban renewal. Chuck, what was the big driving motivation behind Jobonomics? What was it that really hit you at the core that said, you know what, I don't like what I see, Something different has to happen, uh, and and I need to do it. What was that, and what what that drove you there? Well, as I started off, you know, uh, it was uh, started in prayer. I don't want to over spiritualize things. I, being a fighter pilot, I'm tend to be kind of an anti-establishment uh, uh, guy, so it's unusual for me uh, to have. Uh, got into it, but I was on one of the presidential campaigns back in 2007, and. Uh, I was uh, was led to uh, to write a book about uh, economic security. Um, the uh, the presidential campaign that I was on, that uh, on the advisory group, it was a national security. And uh, since I was an ex fighter pilot and the corporate executives at uh, at uh, General Dynamics, uh, I had a lot of experience on. Uh, airplanes and tanks and weapons and that stuff. And I also spent about 10 years in the Middle East, so I had a pretty good handle on uh, what was happening uh, after 9-11. But uh, the serial entrepreneur part of it, uh, uh, I was in uh, actually in New York City briefing a bunch of, uh, of uh, Wall Street executives, and they said, why don't you write a book? So I said, no, I really don't think so. So I prayed about it. And Unfortunately, when you pray about things, sometimes you get an answer. In this case, I did get an answer, and he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I uh, I, I wrote the, the first book out of nine, and uh, figured I could just go to Capitol Hill, which I did about 20 times. Actually, Hugh went with me in a couple of meetings on Capitol Hill, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I thought that uh, they would just love, you know, my intellectual capability. And uh, both the uh, the Democrats and the, and the Republicans kind of showed me the door. They were not interested in a centrist approach to uh, small business and job creation at the base of the pyramid, the social economic pyramid. So 
we essentially went to uh, the governors and got a little bit more interest, but uh, the real interest came from uh, the mayors and the community leaders in the inner cities. And uh, they, they, they just kind of had, kind of fed up, you know, that uh, nothing's working for them. And uh, they, and so uh, our unconventional approach to small business creation and micro business creation has appealed to a lot of the community leaders in the inner cities. And uh, again, we've got about 18 different uh, activities going in different cities. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your short question. So let me stop there. Oh, that's amazing, Chuck. You know, I remember Henry Kissinger saying that the absence of alternatives clears the mind marvelously, and I think that may have been uh, where some of those local leaders are. You're working in some communities that have been hit pretty hard, and so you went to them with this quite a while ago, but there seems to be a little bit of resistance to it. Why do you think that there's so much resistance to these ideas that, that can really create impactful change that no one's talking about. Well, you know, if you consider white a color, you know, I'll tell you places I go, I'm the only guy of color in the meeting. So, uh, and uh, so there's a resistance about somebody that, uh, uh, that presents himself as a middle-aged white uh, rich guy, you know, kind of Trump-esque, you know, when you go in the inner city. Uh, so there's an immediate kind of like, why are you here? And, uh, so once I start meeting with them and start laying out our uh, concept about a, a community-based business generator, how to mass produce business, you see, uh, if I produce one net new job in the rich burbs, you know, I've created one job. But if I go in the inner city, in the very the depressed inner cities and create one net new job, I only not only create a job, but I also reduce the poverty rate and I also uh, take a big step to reducing the crime and providing hope. So I got a triple impact in the inner city. And, uh, you know, like I said, the, the inner city guys are, are, uh, are very open to, uh, a self empowerment strategy. Okay. And how they could, because, uh, uh, but then once that happens, I, I, you have to get a, a coalition together. And so we work on these coalitions and then the coalitions in the inner cities, it, uh, they come up against other, other coalitions and the other coalitions in the inner city are very established, you know, that the, uh, uh, whether they're looking for, uh, uh, well, it's, it's just, there's a lot of competition for the, the few resources in the inner city. Uh, what I think differentiates us is the fact is we have some turnkey programs that could make our programs uh, uh, self-financing. For example, in Baltimore, we went to West Baltimore and there was a number of community leaders that took me all through West Baltimore. And, you know, West Baltimore is probably one of the hardest hit areas uh, in the country. And, uh, and so the coalition, but they came up against other competing uh, ideas of how to do it. But again, we're not distraught at all about, uh, about uh, you know, the, the difficulty that we had to get the things started because uh, we, we, we changed the dialogue. We, we take a dialogue uh, to uh, self-empowerment, how to mass produce, uh, how to create initiatives. Baltimore, for example, we wanted to create 100,000 new jobs in the inner city. Uh, I just got back from Chicago, and the two worst-hit neighborhoods in Chicago are Austin and Englewood. And uh, I went into Austin and a bunch of community leaders, and I've probably got 50 community leaders now uh, working with me now to, uh, or I'm supporting them, let's put it that way, about how to create thousands of jobs and, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, micro businesses and it's one of the hardest hit neighborhoods. And, uh, and, and, and working with their aldermen and the uh, and their uh, their city councilmen and the mayor and and the governor and and there's a lot of money in both uh, Baltimore and uh, and in places in Chicago. We're working in Atlanta, in Detroit, those types of places that uh, that are interested in in in, in created minority-owned businesses. And to me, that's the only way that the, the problems in the inner cities are going to solve is mass-produced, highly scalable uh, uh, micro-businesses. 
and and and, and focusing on the the skill levels that are that are low skill levels uh, and there's and so so that's that's kind of what we're doing uh, and it's a process not an event and I you know I'm I'm very pleased the way the things are going right now in the inner cities because because uh, uh, there's a lot of excitement about it and there's a lot of debate and there's uh, a lot of buy-in that uh, needs to go on what I need is a guy like you Baloo who is uh, the maestro to come in with me now and to, and to orchestrate the cacophony that uh, that I seem to be able to create. Yeah, this is a lot of uh, what you're doing not only creates uh, businesses for people, which is sustainable, but you take other things into consideration like the environment. So the things that you're doing are serving the community in its entirety. And those are some of your larger projects. Talk a little bit about how the uh, sustaining and cleaning up the environment in these areas plays into into bringing about a recovery for them. Yeah, when we, you know, jobs don't create jobs, businesses do. You know, small businesses today uh, create about 80% uh, of all new businesses uh, in this last decade, which is amazing with the austere environment because uh, everybody in Washington really wants to cater to the big business. You know, it's kind of a, you know, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, you know, they, they tend to look for the big business. And uh, the big business really haven't created all that many new jobs. Uh, and with uh, the new tax cuts and everything that are going on, businesses are going to use that to uh, make money on money. They're going to buy back stock and, you know, you know uh, 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 invest in the secondary market and those type of things where small businesses they get a little extra money they hire I and mean, they they tend to hire the unemployed so uh the whole notion of minority owned businesses uh you know is is, is the kind of way to uh, to change the uh, the paradigm in, on the inner city so uh, now you mentioned energy uh, we have really kind of three areas uh, jobs still create jobs businesses do but businesses uh, really focus on satisfying uh, a current need. Uh, and we, there's really kind of three broad categories. Number one category is filling the six million open jobs today. And those six million open jobs, and we know where they are. We do a quarterly report that is about 300 pages uh, on where the jobs are and what jobs are needed and where the skill levels are needed. So matching those to a skills-based training program that we have, and we have access to about 9,000 skills-based training programs, which are all federally certified. So that's number one area. The second area is on the digital economy. And the emerging digital economy will create tens of millions of jobs. And that's really where we focus on the, uh, the net savvy, uh, digital age, screen ager types of people. But the third big area is the energy. And we have programs like uh, uh, solar uh, panel installation and uh, in, uh, and uh, and maintenance. Uh, we have uh, construction and demolition, environmental remediation. We have weatherization and uh, uh, programs. Uh, so uh, we have a number of programs that are involved with energy efficiency. That uh, that not only creates green jobs. And by the way, the uh, the digital economy is green jobs. So you know those are all green related kind of jobs. So uh, we we focus on those three broad areas of for jobs is filling the existing jobs and the new uh, jobs that are coming available through the energy technology revolution and the digital technology revolution. And and we've written a book in, uh, on on all three of those areas. So what we do is try to tailor it to the inner cities. And we provide all that information and show them that uh, when you go to the decision makers and the policy makers, that there is some uh, there's some research and logic behind this uh, to uh, to get these started. Well, the research and the jobonomics report, even just the quarterly reports, is phenomenal. And there's stuff that you know there's common myths and. Uh, the way that they count unemployment really doesn't account for the majority of the people that are actually out there. Uh, talk a little bit about some of these quarterly reports that you do, because I've not seen anything like them anywhere. And if somebody really wants to get a good handle on what's happening, 
they don't want to read these reports. And uh, so how much uh, uh, are, are people in leadership positions in Washington reading these reports? Are they resisting them? What, what sort of responses uh, and feedback do you get from these reports? Because they're, they're brilliant. Well, again, the well, thank you. Uh, first of all, for the people who listen to this podcast, you can go to jobonomics.com. That's J-O-B, job, E-nomics.com. And go to the presentation uh, uh, tab, and uh, you can download these reports for free. And uh, we have 30,000 people that download these every month. And so that's quite quite a few. Uh, uh, as far as the policy makers and decision makers, uh, we, we tend to focus more on the community leaders, those decision leaders, and we, we get it to them and we expose them to this information, and then they ask us to work with them to develop a, a plan for, uh, for specifically for their neighborhoods. And, uh, and we, uh, and so, uh, the, the two reports you talk is our comprehensive employment and our comprehensive unemployment. The first one's about 175 pages long and it's updated every quarter. And the unemployment is about 150 pages updated quarterly. The employment kind of shows where the jobs are in the fastest growing industries and what we just talked about. The unemployment is equally important because it, uh, it looks at why people are leaving the workforce at twice the rate that they, that they are entering the workforce. And in the inner cities, uh, if you look at it, and the first thing we go in East is then we draw a map by each, uh, each neighborhood or every uh, census tract, and we look at the household income. And usually, for example, in Erie, Pennsylvania, in the heart of the inner city, and it's a city of about 100,000 people, the uh, inner city is there their household income is only about $11,000. Or about a mile away, the average household uh, Hope in the American dream is that they tend to turn to workfare, welfare or they tend to work to the underground economy for a living. So that's why the reported household income. So you gotta deal with the, with the issues of why are people not joining the traditional work uh, environment and we, we tailor our programs to uh, uh, to uh, to do that. Now, in the inner cities, especially in the low-skilled areas, uh, you know that doesn't mean. I mean, a plumber makes more than a PhD now. So you know, if you can, uh, if if we can, and the people in the inner cities, if they if they don't have a lot of hope in the traditional economy, uh, they're more likely to turn to the underground economy, the illegal economy. Uh, than, than try to to traditional business. And a lot of people ask me, they say, well, in the inner city, well, these people are, are, are you know, not motivated. And I said, well, that's not true. I said, first of all, if you go to a job fair in the inner city, I was one in Camden, uh, in New Jersey, uh, about two years ago, and because uh, and, I, I was helping sponsor it. There was probably 5,000 people in the line, but to get the 50 jobs that are there, it was like winning the lotto. And I said, well, this is kind of a backward way to doing it. But if I could, if, if I could teach these guys, certify a skill and, and, and certify them within weeks or a month, uh, that is a lot higher probability. Uh, and so they just don't know that this is available because we're always talking about Get a college education. Well, that's a bridge too far for 90% of people that are, that are financially distressed. And so, but we say our, our program is if I, can, if I can certify somebody in a skill within months, in a career within a year, then that's, that's, a, that's a different pros, uh, prospect. And, and, and especially if it ends up with a minority-owned business that is anchored in the inner city. Unfortunately, the people in the inner city that may are successful, the first thing they do is they move out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these, yeah, and you're looking at communities that are hardest hit, and I know they're open to that. And no two communities are exactly the same, although you have the same types of problems. Talk a little bit about the variety of some of these projects and and what which ones fit better in some parts of the country than they do in others. Yeah, well, let's take uh, 
Let's take West Baltimore versus Erie, Pennsylvania, and versus Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, our Baltimore uh, effort was focused on uh, creating about 100,000 jobs in the inner cities. And that's about how much they've lost over the last decade or two. So we're talking about within the next five to eight years to create that number of jobs. So it's a, it's a doable thing. So in Baltimore, there's six medical centers in Baltimore. You got John Hopkins and University of uh, Maryland and stuff. So one of our initiative is a direct care initiative. And a direct care tends to be focused on uh, molder, uh, particularly uh, uh, women, you know, that their basic skill is a maternal skill. Okay. And so uh, direct care can mean child care, elder care, uh, uh, and, and behavioral care. And behavioral care is a really big one. And 40% uh, of all the new jobs uh, that are going to be out in the next uh, decade are going to be in, in direct care. Uh, for example, behavioral care, if I could teach somebody to provide, start an in-home business or an at-home business, provide in-home care. And, and behavioral care has got to do with uh, 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 smoking succession, uh, succession obesity, uh, uh, sickle cell anemia, diabetes, uh, weight loss. And if I can create them with a program that they could go in and do counseling services for, for these people, but also be equipped with a, a, a pad or a PDA or a smartphone that's connected to a Nova Health or to these medical centers and stuff like that. So they go in and they, and, and they have a, a prescribed kind of program to work with, like a weight loss program. Okay. okay. And if they need additional help that the person has got uh, diabetes because of their overweight and that type of thing, they can, they can, they can connect to a doctor or, or a physician's assistant right there and take care of the problem immediately. So that's kind of a, a, a direct care one. Another one was uh, that Baltimore has got 30,000 derelict homes. And uh, it's really, and so the city is what they're trying to do is just kind of plow them down and, and make green space, you know, make parks out of them. And I said, well, that's kind of a dumb way of, of doing it. So I went to an investment group, and they said, if you can get the city of Baltimore that owns these 30,000 derelict homes and create, uh, use that as collateral, we could put together a $100 million micro-business loan to start businesses, and we could do manual uh, deconstruction rather than hiring some outside firm to come in with bulldozers and knock everything down and clear it out, but we could take the things down and I could create, I could certify a guy to swing a hammer within weeks. Now, that sounds facetious, but it isn't. I'm talking about OSHA. And in about three or four weeks, I can certify him how to do a jackhammer. And I can certify him in a couple of weeks to do a caterpillar, uh, you know, or a, you know, a bobcat kind of tractor type of thing. And so we take the, uh, these, the, the, these down and I can use the aggregates for uh, road fill and uh, work they're doing in the harbor. I could take the electronics uh, or the uh, related the wiring, the HVA systems to to reclaim that through a program we call uh, eCycling USA that we started that can uh, retrieve the raw materials. Uh, I can create uh, a renovation businesses because not all these houses need to come down. Some of them just need to be upgraded. And uh, you upgrade them either through weatherization or solar panels or you know those type of things. So, there's a whole kind of a manufacturing deconstruction. And then in Baltimore, we had several, we've got a digital economy one, and then we also had a collaboration with Under Armour that, uh, that uh, was gonna invest $139 million in community development, but they were gonna make parks. And uh, because they were building, Under Armour was building a big $26 billion R&D. And the inner city guys fought against them. And uh, the reason they fought it was the NAACP and the ACLU. And the reason they fought against uh, uh, them was because that they were only going to give 5% of the uh, direct workforce to the, uh, to, the, uh, to, to the inner city people. And so I said to the NAACP and the ACLU, the community, I said, why even bother? And for 5% or 30%, I said, if you go after the indirect workforce, which it means – you know, the shopkeepers, the entertainment, the lodging, and the transportation guys that support that, 
that's five times as many jobs. So you use that $139 million to create the, uh, the service industries to support the direct care guys. So that kind of gives you an example in Baltimore and in, um, in Phoenix is totally different. We are the guy that's leading our Phoenix effort is a two-time ex-con. And uh, in Phoenix has become a gateway city for the drug cartels. And, uh, and since the, uh, the border security is up now and uh, the, you know, the drug cartels are getting a lot smarter, they say, well, why try to get our cries across the border? You know, why don't we just recruit at-risk youth gang members and the ex-cons to do our bidding for us in the inner cities? So we say as an alternative to that, it's, it's like fighting fire with fire. You know, you start brush fires to, to you know, to, to, to stop a forest fire. We say, why don't we create a workforce reentry center to mass produce uh, micro-businesses that are really uh, uh, tailored for uh, the ex-offender and the at-risk and the gang member community? Uh, and so that seems to have gotten a lot of interest. The first, when you go in there and start proposing these things, and these are pretty detailed plans we, we, we lay out, they laugh, you know. They say, what kind of nutcase are you doing this? But then as they start to socialize it, you know, then they say, hey, look, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea. Then when they take it over and they own it, they change it around to really fit it the way they want to do it. So that's those are two examples. I can go on and on and on, but uh, that gives you a few examples of you know, the type of things that we're trying to do. And that's remarkable. And it is important because everybody has something that's a little bit different going on. And they have different motivations. But the beauty of this and the power in it is not only in Baltimore, for example, have you taken care of a problem with housing, you've created careers for people that pay good wages and present more home ownership opportunities, actually repurposing the community and turning it around. What sort of response in your travels, because now this is really starting to take hold, what sort of responses have you got from potential corporate partners? Have you found some that have been really receptive? Have you met some resistance? What's, what's been the overall experience that you've had? Well, not only the corporate, but for the high net worth individuals. You know, the one we have in Erie, it, 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 it seems to work out. We've had a little bit more success in majority-minority cities as opposed to minority-majority cities. And the reason, it, it goes to the heart of what you just said, is like I said, in, uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, within one mile, you know, it, the, the household income's eight times what it is. So I go in the high income areas, whether it's the, uh, the high net worth individuals or the corporations, and uh, they say, well, why should I be interested in this, you know? And uh, they said, be because it's some kind of spiritual thing. I said, no, I said, some kind of moral thing, no. I said, the reason you want to do this is protect your gains. And I said, you know, if you don't fix the problems in the inner city, you know, then it's going to drag you down. It's, it's a di difference between a bucket of crabs and a bucket of ants. You know the difference between a bucket of crabs and a bucket of ants? Well, the ants travel faster. The ants out of the bucket and the crabs will keep pulling every, all the other crabs down in the bucket. So what we want to do is create a, a rising tide that lifts all boats and, or a, a bucket of ants where everybody's helping each other out. It's better than dragging each other down. Okay. In Erie, Pennsylvania, they've probably spent a half a billion dollars on modernizing the waterfront. And I said, well, you know, how are you going to get people to come in there when you've got, you know, abject poverty, you know, within walking distance? And I said, you can buy a lot more cops and keep all the homeless guys, you know, corralled in the in you know in the poverty areas or you can eliminate the poverty and I said we've got a number of programs we have you know for example we have a micro uh, farming program urban urban agriculture program that we can take all these derelict uh, uh, warehouses and we can put vertical farming and then have uh, uh, my little greenhouses for micro businesses there and what that does it it, it, it creates a number of micro businesses in the inner city anchored in the inner city. And for every direct job that will create three or four indirect jobs in the inner city. And most of these inner city areas are food deserts. I mean, they're not, other than a Seven Eleven, you know, they, they don't have it. So, but if I can create wholesome, you know, uh, 
food and stuff and jobs on this thing now. And, and a lot of the policies are just wrong-headed. I mean, you, you're familiar with HUD Section 8. Mm. <laughs> you know, HUD Section 8, is to me, is insane. And you know, I'm not against the program, but they're, they're using that in Baltimore now. And so what they're doing, HUD Section 8, for the people in the, uh, in, in, you know, they're listening, says we're going to take the, the poverty-stricken people in the, in the depressed areas that are going to move out in the suburbs. And they're really, and, and the last administration has created like vouchers, like 20 million vouchers or 2 million vouchers, I don't know the exact number, of moving these people out. But what would it, with the net effect in Baltimore, and that's happening now now, is that they take all the people that have got some moxie, you know, and some drive, and they're, they're, they're moving them out. And we say, well, don't cancel HUD Section 8, reverse it. I said, the real poor people right now today are the college graduates. I said, if I could take a college graduate in either an historically black college or any kind of thing, depends on your disposition, and move them into the inner cities, especially the digital economy, and underwrite their, uh, uh, their, uh, their, their rent using HUD Section 8. And by the way, there's a number of federal programs that will actually, if you do social uh, programs like the millennials like to do, will forgive their student loan debt. So now I'm bringing, you know, the the high skilled at least intellectual kids in there to work with the inner city kids which you know are digitally savvy as well to mass produce micro businesses and increase the dna quotient as opposed to reducing or increase the dna quotient rather than reducing the dna quotient well bringing people back to pay it for what they have it's it's a, it's the right idea as far as making these things work um and there are a lot of opportunities to do things. HUD Section 8, I mean, I've seen people on waiting lists in, uh, in one of my old jobs. I had people who were in the community who spent upwards of two years or more. And a lot of money is thrown at these, uh, at these programs. And uh, there was a sense that I had that people were more interested in saying, we spend X number of dollars to take care of these folks that need something, and it's just not working. We, we keep throwing good money after bad. We're spending all this money and nothing's changing, so we should stop spending this money. What have you been able to say to these people to, to maybe have them rethink that philosophy? Well, like you said, there's a lot of money out there. I mean, there's a... Uh... You know, you got all the kind of the federal program. I mean, in, you know, for the formerly incarcerated in, uh, in, in, in Arizona, there's a, the Arizona spends a billion dollars a year in incarceration. So there's enough money in programs to, to try to reduce the recidivism rate. You talk about HUD Section 8, HUD Section 3, all those kind of programs out there. There's a lot of training dollars. So to, to train the, the, uh, the, the paradigm around from moving people out of the inner city to move the smart people in the inner cities for a social cause to use the programs, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of philanthropic organizations that, uh, that are very interested in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in supporting that. They're not interested in charity. I mean, everybody's owner weary. It's the difference between f teaching a guy to fish and fishing. If we can teach them how to fish, a lot of people are, are, are very interested in that as long as they got an actionable program. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we're encouraged that, you know, when you start talking about these kind of programs that are kind of wrong headed, you know, and that, you know, that have been tried time and time and time again, and still not producing, why not try something different? Well, if you want a different experience, you have to do something different. And I, I think uh, change is slow, particularly on the government level, and it can be on the corporate level. And when you go into different communities, you have some of these large corporations. And um, do you think that talking about creating micro businesses, because a lot of these larger entities are concerned with being able to get qualified employers, the, the, uh, employees, uh, do you think some of them might resist on the theory that if people are qualified, but they're starting their own businesses, that won't 
help increase my employee pool and and just think maybe this isn't something I should support? Has that been something that surfaced? Oh, that comes up all the time. And actually, uh, once they get done listening to us, they're really enthusiastic because, as you said, the number one problem that corporations now have is finding qualified people. The reason for the six million open jobs are are mainly skill based. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we go in and we have a community business. Uh, we have a community uh, based business generator, and so, for example, we go into a community and let's say take Baltimore that have you know a hundred thousand people that would kind of like to get a job or go to work or whatever. So to get into our program, we need a letter of recommendation from a a, a, a sponsor that sponsor could be a church a, you know a sports coach a parole officer uh, you know a school and so they say hey you know uh, Hugh Ballou is uh, is uh, kind of down and out but you know we're gonna recommend it. so he comes into our program and then uh, what we, we, we do is we put him through a battery of aptitude tests now you can go onto our website right now and take a hundred uh, a ten minute test uh, questionnaire. And it'll tell you whether you've got the aptitude to smart small business, and whether that is a cold consulting business or a franchise business or a independent contractor business, whatever. So, but we so we get them through uh, a battery kind of aptitude test, and we give them another recommendation. So now that Joe Schmo or Joe uh, Hugh Ballou in this case, has got two letters of recommendation, one from a sponsor and one from us. And the next thing we do is we self-incorporate them into an S corporation, and that doesn't take time at all. And then we, we, we give them a skill in weeks or months, you know, or use an existing skill that they have. Now, veterans already have skills that, you know, that are certified, so that's not a big deal. Now, that guy who is Hugh with just a GED, you know, now is is Hugh Inc. with two letter recommendation, a certified skill, and then we take him to the employer and said, "Okay, now Hugh has got we we have put him through tests and we've got doubly recommended, and we think he's going to make a good employee, but don't hire him. Subcontract him because he's got his own company. Give him a 1099, and if you like him, then you hire him." Corporations jump through their hoops on that. Plus, before we go to the corporations, we at Canvas them saying, okay, what are the open jobs you've got coming two months from now, six months from now? And we'll know that. And by the way, if you want to do the training in our place, then you come in and train and certify the guys, and you pick the ones that you want. So it closes the gap. It's 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 Rather than have to stand somebody in line for a job fair, you know, for hours, you know, to connect that, you know, that it is. Okay. So you kind of get the idea. Yeah. We're, we're approaching our last uh, 12 minutes of this podcast. I want to do some specific pointing toward how the community nonprofits and churches and synagogues can facilitate some of these programs. Like, could they apply for grants and do educational programs? Give us some ideas of how the, the social benefit community can participate in this. We that our nonprofit social benefit community is our sweet spot. We love working on these guys. Now, when you when I went into little tiny Durham, South Carolina, Durham, the city council said, "Well, we got sixteen hundred nonprofits, and uh, we don't have the money supported because they're all cutting each other out because it's one it's a pie, and the pie gets smaller and smaller, and you know." And to me, the problem with the nonprofits is they get people all dressed up with no place to go. And I'm not being pejorative here, but if they have training programs, resume programs, reading programs, you know, those kind of programs, it's all about preparation. And, and what we focus on is, is it's kind of like in the Bible, James 2 says, you know, you don't tell somebody that's cold or hungry, you know, be well and, you know, no, feed them. Give them what they need. What these people need is jobs. Okay. If you create the small businesses, these micro businesses, self-incorporating, we create their own little business. We give them a skill. And that is something that the nonprofits can do with us. 
We don't have to do the training. We can let a nonprofit do it. And plus, we all have these programs, for example, an electronic waste program. Electronic waste is the fastest growing waste stream in the United States. And the big companies like waste management collect all this stuff and they process and make a lot of bucks on the stuff. We create in the inner cities a minority owned nonprofit that does electronic waste. And we could put $10 million a year into that nonprofit for workforce development and job and business creation. And, and, and then when the nonprofits hear that, now I could do that with a church, I can do it with a regular nonprofit, a 501c3, a 50, you know, those type of things. They love that idea of how to be, you know, to be able to get, you know, to create the small business and also to be self-sustaining where they don't have to go to the government because the, 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 the nonprofits, when they go to the, they go to their donors, uh, whether it's a government or, you know, you know, a parishioner, they, uh, you know, parishioners and, 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 in governments, after they give them two or three times, they usually want to give them to somebody else. This way, if they create their own revenue stream, okay, and and especially encourage the entrepreneurialism in, in jobs and business creation, then that gives a whole new venue to these nonprofits. This is it's, it's about building successes up one at a time, a few at a time, and this is, sounds like a great vehicle. Who are some of the nonprofit partners that you currently have that you're most proud of? And what do you look for in, in your nonprofit partners? Yeah, in, in the inner cities, the nonprofits that seem to be the most viable are the churches. You know, the AME church is actually about as powerful as the Catholic church. I mean, you know, it's not the size, but it has got the power. And, uh, and, and that's why a lot of community leaders in the inner cities become pastors because it's a respected community and that type of thing. So they're the community leaders I really enjoy working with. And, and they're the ones that bring in the other uh, nonprofits. The, and the other nonprofits that we work are like for Head Start, uh, you know, organizations, uh, Hispanic organizations, uh, La Raza's and those kind of organizations. Uh, are all very good uh, organizations, and it's not you go into the inner city, and you could you could it's very quickly you can find out what are the big dogs nonprofits, you know that are there, and you go get them, and then you you make them part of your coalition, so it's it's not us versus them, it's we, okay, and it, it it's to our like in in Austin. Chicago, we have three nonprofits. We have a church called the Rock of Salvation Church, and, 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 and we have a Circle K uh, Head Start, and we have the Catalyst Group that is uh, kind of a halfway house for uh, recovering alcoholics, uh, that type of thing. And they have a 200,000-square-foot facility that they've all kind of jointly, and I said, okay, you have these three things. Why don't we a, a, a small business and job uh, creation center in there, and we'll build upon your infrastructure. And by the way, if we create this electronic waste thing, we don't have to do it in Austin, we can do it out in the burst. We can create for a $5 million kind of investment that I can get underwritten by you know, the community development banks and, that, and, and those type of things. We'll create a $10 million revenue stream for you a year, which is, you know, they're making all this stuff worth, worth a quarter of that. You know, and what can you do with $10 million a year? And that, and that would be your own, your operated operation. And those three nonprofits are coming together and, and, and saying, let's go pursue this. Chuck, that's phenomenal. And what's the best way for nonprofits that are interested in more information to get all of you to find out well, all in this their stuff, communities? Yeah, all this stuff is on the website, thejobonomics.com. Go to the presentation and you can get not only the, you know, the employment, unemployment report, special reports, and the energy economy, the digital economy, but you can get my New York operation, you get my Baltimore operation, my Erie operation, the Chicago operation, the, uh, uh, the Phoenix operation, the plans and the programs are all there. Download it and, uh, you know, and then look at it and come back to us and uh, if you're interested, then we'll come down and, and, and we don't charge for this service. You know, we send this all pro bono. 
Now, when we work with community leaders, free. Now, if we work for a, you know, a government organization, they, they got to offset our costs. Uh, by the way, what we do is, once we get the community leaders, any government contract, it goes through them, and the most of the money goes to them. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, we're approaching the back end of the hour. Are there, uh, are there some things that I haven't asked you about that you feel are really important for some of our viewers and listeners to know about? Well, right now the, the United States economy is not sustainable. Uh, you know, you hear a lot in the news about oh, the Dow Jones Industrial is up to, you know, historic highs and the unemployment's historical lows and consumer confidence is at the highest of a 17 year period. And just, I'm writing a report on that. Yes, those are all true. But the, the income inequality has grown, uh, and uh, of the people last year that took a wage, 72% made below average. And that doesn't include the 95 million that can work that don't work. If you add those people in and the people that, can, that can't work, 86% of the people in the United States make below average wage. No wonder people are so angry, okay? And it's not only, you know, you know, black people that are angry, it's white people angry, yellow people, you know, you, you cut it across across the whole thing. If you're, if you're poor, you know, and you feel that you're not getting part of the American dream. So we got to focus on, on, on the base of the social economic pyramid. And, you know, that's just the right thing to do for the country. And, and, and for the, for the people that are of means to protect their gains is smart. What are some of the things that people in, uh, in, in leadership at the national level can do that they aren't doing now that would help facilitate the spread of this out into more communities? Nothing. The reason why, because the political divide is so bad, the animosity in Congress and the anger is almost palpable. The conservatives hate the liberals, the Democrats hate the Republicans, you know, you know, nobody likes the White House, either this one or the previous one, depending on your point of view. So nothing's getting done on that. And, and they, senators and Congress uh, people are very happy to sit down with owners of billion dollar companies, but they have no interest in sitting down with a thousand owners of, of a million dollar company or a hundred thousand owners of a hundred thousand dollar company. So, it's got to be at the grassroots level. And that's why our national, Jobonomics national grassroots movement has, got, has been exposed to about 20 million people. And these community leaders at the base, it's only going to change at the base because everything is local. It's like real estate, local, local, local. And, you know, you know what your neighborhood problems are. All I can do is come and equip you with the different ways and all the data and help you develop the an actionable plan with a couple of turnkey programs like the e-cycling or the urban mining to get things started because people need these tangible things that start adding in the energy and the digital economy and the direct care, those type of things. And then it'll take its own course. As long as we create highly scalable, I emphasize highly scalable. If I can do one bar shop, I can do 20. If I can do 10 convenience stores, I can do a thousand especially if it's serving the community. Scalability, that's a pretty magic word. And there are a lot yeah. of people in these communities that you serve and have sort of lost hope. So if I were going to talk to some folks in some of our uh, communities that have a higher level of need and I want to tell them about jobonomics, what are the things that I can say to these folks uh, that, would be more motivating because of the experience that you've seen with people in all of the areas that you serve growing their businesses, having their lives change. What are some of the things I can say to these folks to, to, to have them look at a jobonomics and go to their councilmen and, and other people in the community and say, we need this? Well, first of all, they need to get familiarized to, you know, and they go to the website and download it. Okay. And there's a ton of information. So, you know, that's probably, that is a problem too, you know, uh, once they look at it and, you know, they can form what I've heard for as a couple of community leaders get together, give me a call and we'll talk about it. And I'll educate them. I'll point them in the right direction. 
And if they're really serious about it, then we'll put a coalition together. And you got to put the coalition together before you go to the, the politicians, the aldermen, the city council, because you go individually, it's not going to work because they're risk adverse. So <laughs> the, the starting point is go get the information, see if this interests. It's an unconventional approach to business and uh, community development and job creation. And if, if, if you think what's work is, is good now is working for you, then forget it. If it's not working for you, then, you know, take a look. You've had a lot of success. You've created a lot of jobs and we're grateful for that. And I love your program, but I, I don't think many people know about what you have here. Uh, but it's remarkable, and uh, I want to spread the word. I, I probably will have some people call you because yeah, the work you're doing is We've been following about 20 million people, and uh, you know, so it, it's starting to it's starting to take take hold. Well, thank you for your effort. I know you've been at this a long while and met a lot of resistance, but you didn't let that stop you. And I'm grateful for that and uh, looking for bigger things from job jobonomics in the future. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all our panelists who've uh, been here, Flo Lattery, David Dunworth. Uh, as always, we've got Sandy Birkenmeyer here. Thank you very much, Sandy keeps us organized, keeps us moving in the right direction. And I'll hand it over to Hugh for closing thought. Chuck, you just, every time I hear you, I get so excited. I want to sign up now. You've been very faithful to this calling. Thank you for sharing it. It's, uh, it's just does my heart good to see this coming together. And thank you for sharing uh, with this podcast for so many people who are looking for the next best thing. So blessings to you and thanks so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.